I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, writer, and comedian Bob Odenkirk. Over the past four decades, Odenkirk has made a career in comedy. First writing on SNL in the late 80s, then acting on The Larry Sanders Show in the early 90s, before eventually creating Mr. Show in 1995 with comedian David Cross. In the years between then and now, Odenkirk has been hailed as a founding father of the alt-comedy movement, alongside Janine Garofalo, Patton Oswalt, and of course, Cross himself. But he's recently pivoted into more dramatic work. You likely remember his portrayal of criminal defense lawyer Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad, which would later spawn the hit spinoff series Better Call Saul. His latest collaboration with AMC is a new show called Lucky Hank. In it, Odenkirk plays the curmudgeonly chair of an English department where he grapples with outspoken college students, disgruntled colleagues, and his own very frustrating writer's block. Here's a clip from the trailer. Professor, you barely said anything in an hour and a half. Could you please, just for once, say something? Your only novel isn't even available at your own campus bookstore. You? You're here! The fact that you're here means you show very little promise. Did that sound harsh? I'll smile through the rest of this. You are here at Railton College, mediocrity's capital! 
I think you should just keep up with the misery. Being an adult is 80% misery. This is bad. They twisted my words. You know, that's pretty much verbatim. How did you get like this? Wound stuff just bleh. I'm concerned that I might say something really consistent with my personality. Oh my God. But inconsistent with a modern college campus. You lazy son of a- Stop b- it! That's valid. That was the trailer for Lucky Hank. The pilot is now available to stream on AMC. And if you happen to be listening on Sunday morning, episode two will air later tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern time. For Odenkirk, this new project is a harmonious blend of his comedic and dramatic abilities, which we get into at the top here. We also discuss coming of age in Naperville, Illinois, his early years at SNL, the influence of cult comedy legend Del Close, the singular partnership with David Cross that created Mr. Show, becoming a real actor late in life, and a whole lot more. On a personal note, I have long wanted to have Bob on this show, so I just want to thank him here at the top for sitting with me, and really, as you'll hear, giving so much of himself to this conversation. Whoever you are, wherever you're listening, I hope you enjoy this very special conversation with the one and only Bob Odenkirk. Do you want to do the uh, All That Jazz Showtime thing? It's showtime. Bob Odenkirk. Hi. What a pleasure. Oh, good to meet you. How are you feeling? Good. I'm a little tired of the promo roundup that you do when you have a new show premiere. What I find is that the first day and a half is actually great. You wish everyone could have that experience. Have a day once a year where they go from building to building and famous people talk to them about what they did this year. And it's so fun to be able to go, oh, I made this show and here's why I made it and here's the people I made it with. And then by the time you get to day eight, you feel gross inside. What day are we on? Probably like seven. Okay. Yeah. You feel gross inside. You feel this weird, icky feeling. It's There's something wrong about talking about yourself that much. And you kind of can't cleanse your system of it. Uh-huh. You know, it, it doesn't go away like, oh, I'll just go to sleep and I'll wake up and it'll be gone. The icky feeling kind of lingers for a little while. Well, I am going to try to help with some of that. All right. And, and the way we're going to do that is to probably have a conversation that is very different than the ones you've been having for the last six days. Yeah. Okay. Having said that, we do have to start with the new show. Yeah. Lucky Hank. It is uh, excellent. And in it, you play uh, a misanthropic chair of an English department at Realton College. The character's going through something of a midlife crisis, fueled by writer's block and unresolved issues with his father, amongst other things. Yeah, I don't really like the midlife crisis description. I've heard it a number of times now. Midlife crisis sounds so generic. And I also think it's alienating for a lot of people, especially younger people would go like, I don't want to hear about somebody's midlife crisis. I'm, you know, 30 years from that. Is there something else we can call it? Uh, uh, He's at an inflection point. Yes, that? that's what it is. It's okay. We all have chapters in our lives. We're going to go through some of yours. Right. And and we do have these things where you, you're you steaming along maybe for 10 years, maybe for 15 years. 
And everything is in its place. And the way you behave towards the world and the way you think about who you are to other people, it always fits. It fits, it fits, it fits. And then there comes a day or a week or a month, a little time period where maybe it all changed. And it's because maybe, you know, your kids grew up and you didn't notice it and they left the house. In this case, that's what's happened with Hank too. His daughter's gotten married and she's gone. She's been married for a year and a half or two years. And then in the case of his college, it's a small college and it's having financial difficulties, which it always has claimed to have had, but suddenly they're actually real hmm. and uh, it's not a joke and somebody will get fired. And in the case of his marriage, due to his own actions, his wife of 26 years has seen a different way forward than being beside him or supporting him is what she's done. So all these things around him changed and it takes him a little while to realize I'm not who I think I am in the world anymore because the world changed. I think what's fascinating is that within the context of your work, you spent the better part of a decade playing Saul Goodman. Yeah. And I wondered on the heels of that, did you need to live and work in a creative space that was more inspired by sideways than, say, leaving Las Vegas? Yeah. Um, I see the parallels you're, you're drawing there with Saul being leaving Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. I almost got a smile out of you. I kind of think that's a good one. I've never heard that before. And, you know, at the core of leaving Las Vegas, which is one of my favorite films, is, you know, accept me as I am. And I know I'm damaged, but I am not going to keep chasing everyone's approval. You know, accept me as I am because I can't, I have no more energy for trying to placate everyone in the world. And there's something really beautiful, uh, nihilistic, but beautiful about it. And in this case, our friend Hank, unlucky Hank, it is more like sideways where he's got to go through a a journey. He's got to change who he is. And will these circumstances around him, can he do it? Does he have it in him? And uh, hopefully you're rooting for him. <laughs> I, don't know. I think what's striking about Hank is that even though he's the chair of this English department, he has such a disdain for authority, which is something that seemed to form in you beginning in 1972 as a 10-year-old growing up in Naperville. Mm -hmm who would watch Monty Python on Channel 11 every Sunday night. And see the anger in it. People don't necessarily recognize that about Monty Python. It's so silly and it's so intelligent and the reference points of the show are kind of absurdist and wide-ranging relatively. And they don't see that at the core of it is a big fuck you <laughs> to society, society's order. I saw it and felt it when I watched the show. And the beauty in Python is that it's buried in there, but it's, you feel it. You said once, Monty Python became my religion when I was 10. Yeah. It led me out of the depths of darkness. As a young kid, taping comedy bits, you know, with your brother Bill on that Panasonic cassette mm -hmm. recorder that you bought at Kmart. Yeah. What darkness did you need to move away from? Oh, my father was an alcoholic and my mother was a intense Catholic, who was also very funny. They were both funny. My mom made jokes a lot. She cut things down to size. She had a very, very practical side to her. And that was beautiful and lovely and likable. But she was in one area only did she not practice moderation. And that was in 
believing in Catholicism. What did that look like? That looked like seven kids, even though you have a husband who isn't going to show up, except, I guess, to give you kids. And that's probably not a good recipe for especially boys growing up with anything, any supportive sense of being a man and understanding relationships, which is to say they don't have a dad, basically, and yet you keep having them when they have no role model around. You've often described him as a, a hollow man. Yeah. Did she not see him that way? I have no idea what went on between them. It is a mystery. I do think there's an element sometimes we've all seen it where a person, there's a relationship between two people and one seems weaker and put yeah. upon, but then the more you get to know it, the more you go like, oh, I think that person who's in the caboose is actually leading the train. And my mom made that family happen, not my dad. He would have left long before. She's the reason there were seven kids and She'd never really presented herself much as a victim, even though there were some really traumatic times. And the darkness that you asked me about was the instability of our family that really plagues a kid more, I think, than hard times. In other words, if you have hard times and you don't have a lot of money or some bad thing has befallen you or your family and your parents talk to you about it with some degree of patience and confidence, I think that's probably a fine scenario to be in. It's when the kids are clueless, there's arguments after they go to bed and they can hear them. They wake up and the car keys are in the garbage and there's broken something in the garage and uh, the car was wrecked and nobody tells you why. Is that what happened? Oh yeah, all this stuff. So around 10, 11, as Python came along and Really, Python sort of said to me, I, it said, you know, the adults don't know what the fuck they're doing. Hmm. They're clowns. You know, don't feel that bad about this mess that you don't understand. They're nuts. Nothing's gone wrong here. And then, you know, another thing that helped truly is Al-Anon. Do you know what Al-Anon is? I do. It's for the families of alcoholic uh, people with alcoholism. And so the kids can go and the um, I guess anyone who's related to a alcoholic. And I did start to go to those meetings when I was around 11. My mom took me and I'd go once a week. And of course, then what did I get? I got an explanation for what was happening for my whole life that I didn't understand that no one told me. And that uncertainty was way more damaging than financial troubles or anything. The worst thing was the feeling that this house is going to explode under me. And I don't know why. And I don't know, how is this going to end up? What's going to happen? So in many ways, Monty Python articulated something that you didn't quite have the language for. Kind of said, stop thinking that they're going to fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> stop thinking that something has gone that awry. It's not. It was comforting to hear that message and to laugh at it, laugh at that notion. And so I don't, I feel like comedy has always done that for me, has had that message, that general message at its core. And I love that message. So as you accept that message and become a teenager, you make your way into Chicago with a friend of yours on a family trip mm. to visit Second City yeah. for the first time. Inside the theater on Wells Street, you write in your memoir that being in that place felt like a glimpse behind the curtain of adulthood, people letting off steam. 
As a teenager peeking behind that curtain, what did you see? Well, I saw George Went on stage and Don DiPolo, famous Second City actor. I think Jim Belushi was in that show too. But what I saw was these adults on stage being silly. Um, they were 22 years old, 24, but they were adults to me, you know. And then I saw a bunch of adults in the audience who were laughing about and enjoying how ridiculous they were behaving and drinking and occasionally swearing and sort of sharing that vibe of we're all clowns. And it, it just said, you know, adults, you know, secretly they all know that this is a mess. <laughs> Did it make you want to do what they were doing on stage? I did that. I wrote comedy sketches. On the typewriter? Yeah, on my mom's typewriter. My mom had a typewriter she would use for letters, and it was a little mechanical, not electric typewriter. And I borrowed it from her, and I started writing sketches. And the first sketch I wrote was for Tasty Paste, which was a commercial for, I guess, toothpaste that you can eat. I was actually told that you're going to perform that today on the show. Is that right? I don't remember. <laughs> you can guess what a 10 and a half year old wrote when he wrote, it's the paste you can eat, you know, and just thought that was so funny. And then I wrote sketches and my, and like, a, like you said, I would record them with my brother, Bill. And every college I went to, I had a comedy radio show and it still took years of doing that to realize that I was kind of doing the basics of comedy writing mm -hmm. and that's a job that you can get. So I did it. I went to college to do page for one year. I went to Marquette and Marquette. I had a comedy radio show. I was a sophomore. And then I went to SIU Southern Illinois university, which I really enjoyed being there. And I had a comedy show there that was called the primetime special. And that we did, it was like Mr. Show. It, it had sort of a theme. It had, characters. It had recurring ideas and I would write it once a week and it was semi-improvised and I did it with my friend Tim Thomas. Well, let's talk about that because in your last year there, you're 20 years old and I want to return to Wells Street Yeah, in February of 1983. Right. So at some point in writing all these sketches and doing this weekly show, I remember sitting, I was in an empty classroom because I would just use the desk there, the teacher's desk to write I had blank pages, notes and stuff, and then on my right side, some sort of finished ideas. And I thought, this is what a comedy writer does, right? I mean, somebody writes that stuff on TV and I have blank paper here and I have comedy here. I don't know how good it is, but it's here. And so I thought, well, how do I find out what you do to work? And I remembered having gone to Second City and seen sketches and and because I worked for a radio station, I called Second City and said, I want to interview somebody there for my radio station. In February on our break, I went to Second City and interviewed Joyce Sloan. What happens after that conversation is the kind of inflection point that we were talking about at yes. the beginning of this. Yeah. You're outside, walking down the street. Bummed out. Bummed out. Yeah, because the stories Joyce had told me, I met Joyce Sloan, who was considered the den mother of Second City. She she really managed everyone's egos and, and everything, you know. She helped people with their problems. And she just told me all these sort of apocryphal stories of John Belushi and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray and uh, Joe Flaherty. And every story she would tell just made me feel sadder because they sounded all so uh, magically gifted. And even at the time, I just had the thought of like, well, I'm not that. I, 
I have to work hard and maybe I can get better. Can you tell me a story where somebody sucked when you met them and they were terrible and then they worked really hard and then years later they were pretty good? That would be a story I want to hear. Bummed out. You duck into the bookstore. Yeah, so it's cold out. I'll go to the bookstore because I love bookstores. I'm looking at improvisational books. There's two books, uh, Viola Spolin's huge Bible of sports games, of comedy games. And there's Keith Johnstone's book, Impro. Yeah. Impro. So I'm holding this book, Impro, thinking I'm going to get this one because it's smaller than Viola Spolin's book. And I don't want to read that goddamn thing. Also, I don't want to read anything that's considered a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Because what has it done for America, for the world except lead us into hell? Um, and then in walks some hobo-looking guy, and he's talking to the woman behind the counter who's waiting for books to show up, and she keeps saying, Dell, this is that, and Dell, this is that. And I'd seen the name Dell Close on the uh, program at Second City where he had been a director many times. And I thought, well, I'm right up the street from Second City. I wonder if that's Del Close. And I asked if he was. And he said, yeah. And I said, I just interviewed Joyce Sloan, who, of course, he knew very well. They'd worked together for 20 years at that point. I said, can I interview you? And he goes, yeah, I just quit Second City yesterday. It's a, a juncture for me. Uh, I want to tell you everything I'm doing. He loved to ramble, you know. And so we walked down the street, had a Bloody Mary at a bar. He did, not me. And we went to his little hovel, <laughs> and it really was a hovel, man. I mean, it was fucking this little shithole room with a, a door with an octagonal window, and the window, the glass was gone, gone, and there was nothing in its place. There was no cardboard. Chicago, February, okay? The wind is blowing through that octagonal window hard, and the heat, which is radiator heat, is just on a full blast. And it's just this fight. I mean, you can feel the gust of frigid <laughs> air blowing in. And we're sitting there and he's smoking joints, really dirty little brown roachy joints, and talking for two hours. And he's just rambling about his career. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And weirdly, as different as Dell is from me and as different as his life played out, than mine. And I knew I didn't have any desire to live in a little shithole and not have a, I wanted, I knew even when I was a kid that I loved kids and I would love to have a family. And, but as he talked, I also thought all these things that he's done, he'd done so many things. What if I just didn't spend the money on drugs? That's all. I definitely have a house. He said to you, I belong in struggling organizations. Yeah. And I'm the same way. You felt a kinship in that. Definitely. You know, look, I need that sense of risk and almost too much. I mean, lucky Hank, one of the challenges we had, we, we made this show very quickly. The network wanted it. That's always a great feeling when they really, really want whatever it is you're making. But we had to work extremely fast. And that was quite the opposite. So with that ethos that Dell imparted on to you, yeah. you ditch college, you move to Chicago, you start working with him a little bit. Mm -hmm. In this period, as a young 20-something, yeah. you live in an apartment above a pie restaurant yeah. with two cats and, and, most importantly, videotapes of Albert Brooks's real life, obscure Andy Kaufman bits, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, and Lenny, the film Cold Turkey, written and directed by Norman Lear. Yeah. When you walk into Rockefeller Center in yeah. 1986 right. to speak with Lord Michaels yeah. about a potential writing job, yeah. 
What was your game plan going in? Well, I was extremely intimidated. I was very critical of Saturday Night Live. I love Monty Python. Um, you said that to him. I did say that to him, but I knew he loved Monty Python too. So that's not a risky thing to say to Lauren. But I was probably not that communicative. I, I was socially very awkward. And of course, he's the boss and he's incredibly powerful even then, even though they, even the show was definitely struggling and trying to find its feet again. It was not a sure thing, SNL. I don't think that it would carry on forever. If they'd had one or two more weak seasons, it could have gone away, I think. But it was starting to find its feet with a cast that at that point then included Dana Carvey and Nora Dunn and Jan Hooks and Dennis Miller and John Lovitz. It was starting to be a reliable show again. But I didn't think it was dangerous and I didn't think it was as smart as Python and I didn't think it represented a younger generation like I thought it should. Like I thought Lauren was trying to achieve. I thought, aren't you trying to achieve what you did the first five years? You know, a group of people, writers and actors who kind of share a mindset, a point of view on the world and come in here and they just show everybody and they say, fuck you to the man and they they go out on a limb and they do dangerous stuff and they test your patience. And if you're old, you don't get it. And if you're young, you get it. And I didn't have the wherewithal to say that to him, but his answer would have been, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm glad you got to say it to me now. Though. Yes. But if I'd had it in me to understand what I thought I wanted and why I judged the show so harshly, I would have asked that question. Aren't you trying to create this other thing? And he would have said, no, no, I did that already. Everyone left at the same time, which meant the show was over after five years. I don't want to do that again. The audience has grown older and yet they're still watching and 14 year olds are watching it now. So no, I don't want to make a show for 14 to 20 year olds, which is what the first five years were for. I want to make a show for 14 to 32-year-olds. That's why now they make the show for 70-year-olds. And now the show is for 12 to 70. And that's perfectly fine. And this is me talking to young me. If I could talk to young me, I'd say, asshole, you don't get to decide what people want or get. I don't think I look like young you, but you're I'm staring not, right into my eyes. <laughs> if you'd ask me, so tell me how that works, young man. I would have Here, said, well... Should I ask you? Yeah. Tell me how that works, young man. Oh, okay. Well, you go to Second City, and I guess I heard about this place called the Groundlings. Go there, and um, I don't know if there's some funny, weird people anywhere. And you hire them, and then they're not going to be very good for like a year or two. That I understand, but it'll be very exciting and interesting and do whatever you want. I mean, do crazy stuff, you know? And then they get better at what they do, and then after five years, they should all leave, and then you start over. Now ask me if that, is that a good game plan? I mean, will the show f fluctuate in quality? Is that a good game plan? Do you think it may fluctuate in quality? Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it would. Yeah. It'll probably be really bad actually. Um, but you know. End scene. End scene. <laughs> and everybody listening to this who gives a shit about SNL is going like, yeah, but the quality fluctuates anyways. And I might, I just would say to you, but not as much as my little plan that I just shared with you. My little plan would be a disaster every five years, a complete, like, I can't watch. These people don't know each other. They don't necessarily like each other. 
you know, you can't do that. You can't trash the show every five years. But it may be funnier. And when it's great, it might be greater. You're right. When it's great. But it's so rarely going to achieve that. Well, so let me set the stage here, because with that misunderstanding, you do join SNL in 1987. Yeah. But what I want to talk about is what happens to you around season 15 of the show, which is when you start surreptitiously moonlighting at Second City as a performer. And there's one specific performance where you're on stage with Chris Farley and Jill Talley. And you have what you called a stray existential flash of insight. Yes. What was it? It's so funny that you asked me this question because I was thinking about this little story today. I'm on stage. I'm doing an improvisational sketch with Farley and Tally. We're goofing around and the audience is enjoying it. And they're especially laughing at Chris. And when you do seven shows a week, as you do at Second City, you gain this ability to kind of think two thoughts at once you you know you're you're in the game but you also can think about jokingly your you know what you need to get at the grocery store after the show but i had this stray thought that was like if i was sitting in that audience watching these three performers i'd be watching that guy chris farley i would be laughing at that guy i would be laughing at jill tally who's really funny and silly and that other guy bob odenkirk i'd be like Ugh, I don't know. I don't know what he's up to. I don't know if he's funny or serious. I don't know. His energy's offbeat. And I had the same at the same moment, the thought, and that would be great in a drama. If I was in a dramatic scene right now, my energy would be intriguing and kind of surprising and wake you up a little. And, oh, maybe I should do drama one day. That's it. That's a, a very short thought. And then I had to say a line that I was improvising. I had to pay attention to what we were doing on, at some point. And it stuck with me. It was a weird, funny thought. It kind of resonated through the years because, you know, I went on to perform with people like David Cross and uh, Jack Black and lots of people who are just kind of funny when you see them. The first thing they say, the energy they bring out on stage makes you smile, makes you laugh. And I just don't have that. And that's okay. Lots of people don't have that. But this one thing stuck with me that maybe if you were in a drama, you'd have a little more of a special energy that could help that drama. Because I think in a drama, it is a good thing to have the character come out and you aren't sure how you're supposed to feel about them. So I will just say this to everyone who might be listening. Sometimes we listen to actors and they pontificate about their life and you go like, Jesus, that was the dumbest brain fart story you just told me. And I would just say to you, please forgive me. The gentleman here asked me a question, and that's the best answer I have. I didn't come in here that I have to tell you this story. I understand that it's a thin offering. But if you do ask me, did you ever suspect you would be good in a drama? That is the only story I have for you. And it's all I got. And maybe it's dumb, but that's what I got. You know, since you're addressing the listener head on, dear listener. Oh, I should have said that. If you know the show, oh, and if you've been listening, you probably do. Dear listener. There's a good reason I brought it up. And uh, give it about 30 minutes, and we'll get back to it. Okay. After the break, more from Bob Odenkirk.
You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Coming back, once you decide to leave SNL in the early 90s, you make the move to Los Angeles. When you're helping create the alt-comedy movement with folks like uh, Janine Garofalo and Pat Oswalt, you work on TV, uh, Get a Life, The Ben Stiller Show, and The Larry Sanders Show with the great Gary Shandling. Yeah. But in this period, as you're finding your footing, what does the death of comedian Bill Hicks do to you? when he passes on February 26, 1994? Well, it only does the most obvious thing uh, that should happen to you when you drive by a cemetery, which you probably do every day of your life. It reminds you that you will not live forever and you better make some choices now and not let things just hang out long, too overlong that aren't satisfying or pleasing to you. Bill, I only met Bill Hicks once. I didn't we were both backstage at uh, Paul Provenza's talk show. We just said hi to each other, and I knew he was a stand-up, and I knew everyone respected him, and he was smart and kind of edgy. And he knew I was doing comedy with this cool crew in L.A. and probably knew that I had been a writer at SNL. I kind of had a weird little bit of a reputation for being smart and offbeat and interesting. So it was nice, hello. And then he... He passed away like nobody knew he was sick. I mean, his story is that odd story about being on Letterman for his last appearance. And Letterman didn't know that he was dying of cancer. And they cut his set from the show because he said some harsh stuff. And then later, I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, they kind of regretted having done that because 
if they'd known he was dying, they wouldn't have cut. Of course, Bill's attitude was, fuck you. You should have put it on because it was good, not because I'm dying. Right. I don't want that. And that's why I didn't tell anyone. He died at a very young age. I think he was 33 and I was 31 at the time. And uh, that's only about a year and a half apart. So uh, I was like, uh, shit. Um, there's certain things in my life have been sort of straggling along, including a relationship I was in that just kind of wasn't moving. And uh, I can't just do this. I have to make choices. So that's it kicked my pants in a good way. In such a way that you ended up going to the Montreal Just for Last Festival. Yeah. Crashing David Cross's hotel room. And it's yes. really there that this partnership yeah. forms. In front of very eager audiences, you played an improv game called Naked Phrase Guess. Yes, we also did Fart and Rudy, but we did three shows, three different bits that we cooked up right there. Um, so, you know, more than semi-improvised, but we had a structural idea around them. It was great. When you two were up there, did that collaboration feel different to you in the moment? Did it seem like something different than past partnerships? I would say yes. But what really felt different was when we started writing sketches. And we did this weekly show right down Hollywood Boulevard at the Diamond Club. There was a weekly Thursday show and different people would host it. And I hosted the very first one. And David, I asked David to write sketches with me. So we did it together. And then he hosted like the third or fourth episode and I helped him. And so it was essentially the two of us. But when we started writing sketches, that's when it was like, this is crazy great. He said it's because you're a baby boomer and he's from Gen X. I know. We had this fucking argument and he was serious about it. He insisted that I was a baby boomer. How does that feel? Well, it's just dumb and wrong. He's two years younger than me. And what was behind it was he wanted to just be younger than me. He didn't want to be seen as the establishment. And I was the establishment. <laughs> Maybe he was a little resentful of the fact that I'd already been at SNL for four years and won two Emmys. And You're bringing the Emmys into this. Yeah, the only reason he's got all that is because he's older than me. Those two years. By a lot. He's a whole nother generation. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I the baby boomer generation? They are the children of the World War II people. And my dad was in Korea. And... I'm not that. And he absolutely <laughs> was committed to the fact that I was uh, from an older generation than he. I'm glad you mentioned your dad because that defiant independent streak sure. you both shared. Yeah. Do you think it stems from the fact that both of you had fathers that left home that forced both of you, probably at times begrudgingly, to become the man of the house? Yeah. Um, I didn't resent the man of the house thing. I enjoyed when I was able to be a good role model for my brothers and sisters. I, I was very proud of myself and, and felt very gratified to do that and to help take care of the younger kids. I loved doing that when I could, and I wasn't always great. And I did some things that would not have been helpful <laughs> to any young person to see. Uh, but mostly I was a good older brother. And I liked that job. What was really wrong about it for me was my father relationship was that he just wasn't there. And when he was, it was kind of an off balance thing of like, 
is everyone mad at each other? You know, he's he, he was just uh, he was like this free agent, loose cannon fucking thing that was like danger is around this guy, you know. And also, I've got to say, weakness. Like he's just put upon to be, even be here, and it was just a terrible role model, and also no comfort at all. Just the opposite. Uh, upsetting when he was gone it was great we loved that he wasn't home most of the time we loved it and when he would come home everyone would get a little bit less happy and david experienced oh, totally a different thing that was i would say worse in some ways do you think you two are bound by circumstance that you do come from these homes different in their ways but that, that oh, defiant, yeah. I think a lot of streak is born out of that. Yeah, it's true. And I think a lot of comedy comes from anger and looking at the world and saying, what do I hate? What do I think is a hypocrisy? And what do I want to poke and take down? And uh, I think a lot of comics have daddy issues and, and issues with the older generation. But I also think so do a lot of bankers and insurance salesmen and every other goddamn job there is. So let's talk about the comedy that those shitty bankers would maybe watch that huh. you made. Well, I might like Mr. Show, some of them, especially when they were younger. When you were creating the show yeah. with David in that apartment on Sierra Bonita, yeah. how did you explain it to each other? Well, it's Monty Python, yes. We go from one sketch into the next, and there's a theme or story that develops and that you grasp as the half hour plays out. In our case, unlike Python, it's definitely connected to the zeitgeist more. Although many of our sketches are still totally relevant and fun, we were also commenting on things, but because we were very aware that SNL was weekly and we weren't going to be, we had to sort of dig into things a little deeper and try to get under the skin of what the hell's going on, whether it's, you know, Generation X shit or something. We had to dig a little deeper to find something funny about it to say that won't be irrelevant in six months when this show comes on the air. And just to be clear, we didn't follow through. We tried to follow through on the thematic thing. And the only time we did it well was, I think, season three, the mediocrity episode. That was the episode that had the most, I would say, maybe you could say the most like Monty Python. But mostly we didn't do this well. So eventually we just trashed that aspect of our plot and realized that better to be really dynamic vastly different tones, vastly different themes mushed together is way more fun than chasing a theme. And honestly, I sort of think that's true of Python too. If you've ever seen the golden age of ballooning episode, it's not a good episode. The best thing about Python that they, um, they had Terry Gilliam's animations and those animations tied everything together effortlessly. And they made your brain like go into an abstract place, which is just really good for the show. And ours just sort of, I would say, Mr. Show never left the ground <laughs> and Python flew. When you look back at the four seasons of Mr. Show, yeah, how much of the work created came as a response to your time at SNL? Well, it's more the work the system of developing pieces. What do you at mean by Saturday that? Night Live, you you pitch, you have kind of pitch sessions or, and if something doesn't hit, it just gets thrown out. And Mr. Show, we would get together in the morning. What sketch ideas do you have? What do you have? What are you thinking about? 
maybe we'd read a script if someone wrote it. Then we'd all talk about the ideas and, oh, that could be funny if you did this and it could be funny if you did that. And we'd kick it around for about an hour and a half. Then we'd have lunch and get back together after lunch and we'd read those scripts that were just written from this morning's thing. And we'd go, this is kind of funny. I like this one part. Let's make more out of that. Or, oh my God, this moment is hilarious. Forget this whole sketch. Just do that joke. So you're not throwing stuff out whole cloth. That didn't work. It didn't make me laugh. The biggest laugh we ever got was a Titanica sketch where I pull the sheet off David and he's got this little burned up body, this little puppet body. And that was a sketch that Brian Posehn wrote because he's a Judas Priest fan. And and it was really dark and really nasty. And we didn't laugh. No one laughed at it. <laughs> and he laughed because no one laughed at it. And he thought it was so funny that he made us read this shit. And then I was like, uh, well, okay, let's talk about how this could work. And everyone looked at me like, we're going to kill you. They can't work. It's a piece of shit. And then we just started kicking around. There was this one scene, one part in the middle where the band goes, yeah, we know who you are, kid. Your parents sued us. And the kid goes, I know. You guys fucking won. And he's really happy for them. And I said, that's really funny that his attitude is just so upbeat. He's just so happy to meet this band. He's dying. He's going to die because he listened to their song about suicide and he tried it. <laughs> and he's really happy to meet this band of lunkheads. So there's an example of a thing that definitely would have been thrown out at Saturday Night Live. I mean, just no fucking way. And then it turned into the biggest laugh I've ever <laughs> heard. And I've heard a lot of laughs doing all these sketches that I got to do in all these years at sketch shows. When I threw that sheet back. I've never heard an audience laugh simultaneously so fully where everyone, everyone just kill, it just killed them uh, at the same nanosecond. Mr. Show comes to an end in 1998. Okay. A week later, you have your first child. Yeah. Nathan, I believe. Yeah. In describing this turning point, you said, because I'm a father, I'm a little less apt to do a joke about Hitler or something, just because certain things become more serious when you have kids. You just have this strange connection to the world that you didn't have, this emotional connection to the world that before, everything in the world was just a concept that you could laugh at, that you had some distance from. Then, when you have kids, you feel worried for them and connected to the world a little bit more. But that's having kids. Did that shift in yourself make the decade of development hell that followed, did it make it especially difficult? Did you feel the need to find a new creative identity after well, Mr. Show? For sure, I did. It's a weird thing when you get to have everything you wanted and you get to play it out. Mr. Show was everything I wanted to do. I'm not saying it was perfect, but as far as being, okay, write anything you want, be as crazy as you want, you have an audience that's kind of going to follow you wherever you go. You make yourself laugh as hard as you want. You can swear all you want. And you can mix the sketches together like Python did. And just go ahead. Yeah, do that thing that you dreamed of your whole life. And you get that and you enjoy the fuck out of it and do it. And then, you know, it's got to end at some point. And David really wanted to move to New York. And we did all right at HBO, but not great. I mean, we were not a hard show to get rid of. And I think we could have gotten a fifth season if we'd asked. 
they would have said, all right, fine. doesn't cost that much. I mean, we did 33 shows. They're a half hour long, but they have so many sketches, so many jokes in them. And so you got everything you wanted. And now what do you do? Now what do you do? What's next? I think that was the hardest thing about the development heck of the next 10 or 14 years, I don't know, was I just really had satisfied myself and I didn't know what I needed to do next. I certainly liked the many projects that I did and some of them I loved, but none of them as much as Mr. Show. So when I talk about these projects that didn't work and you, someone maybe even says, well, these years are years of failure. I mean, were they? I don't know. Some of those ideas of the 10 TV pilot shows I wrote and, you know, made four or five pilots out of them, maybe three of them were awesome, amazing shows. If I'd gotten to do three episodes, we would have been there and known exactly what it was. You got to be fair minded about looking back and uh, judging stuff that you did. I, I often think about, I think the best show, the best American show ever, Seinfeld to me is the best American sitcom ever. But if you watch those seasons, you see them experimenting for a couple seasons. And when you hear about the report card, if you've ever seen that, do you ever see the report uh -huh. card from the audience? It's uh -huh. all Fs. They all, they hated everyone in it, yeah. everything about it. You know, if that had died right then because of the comment cards died at the uh, the Seinfeld it would have been very easy for everyone to say did you ever see that Seinfeld pilot they made everyone hated it it would have been very easy to say well of course they did turns out people actually want a show about something <laughs> they don't want a show about nothing <laughs> it's kind of obvious right now that you think about it but you'd be wrong what they needed was time to find the rhythm and find the audience they actually had their hands on something beautiful and amazing. It's fascinating because if time is the key, it's definitely the thing that Breaking Bad was given. Oh, yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad is a great example. My friend Matt Weiner, who created Mad Men, his career is a great example. You know, he was uh, on sitcoms, half-hour comedies, and Mad Men got, uh, got him the role part uh, as a writer on The Sopranos, and he did great work there, and... But people could easily have said, well, that's garbage. You know, you didn't get a job off and you write, you write half hour comedies. It's terrible writing. Who cares about you? You know, so you got to be real careful about going, God, I was just writing shit. It was all shit because I, I just don't think it was. I, if you're just dismissive in a, in a harsh way about your efforts, you're going to miss the subtle ways in which you're learning or growing or could grow. Through that decade that I'm not going to describe as a, a period of failure. I don't think that's right. But through that decade of, of tough times, yeah. and there were tough times, you find yourself in that financial hole that you're talking about. Yeah. Due in part, as you write, to a business manager who mistook me for a prize fighter. And suddenly I was signing a loan for nearly a million dollars just so I can continue living in the house. When the call came from Vince Gilligan in Breaking Bad, yeah. Did it feel like a get-out-of-jail Not at all. Not even close. I mean, hardly anyone watched Breaking Bad the first season, and this was the second season, and they were, I think, just, they were shooting the first couple episodes they'd gotten through because I was in episode six, so well, they were probably shooting episode four and five, 
when they called me because I flew down there two weeks later to do the part. So the first season was only seven episodes because of the writer's strike. Mad Men was a massive hit right out of the gate and just got bigger and bigger every year. Breaking Bad was like totally in the background, hardly noticed. But they gave it the time to find itself. Yeah, they did. Second season did okay. Not that great. Still nothing in comparison to Mad Men, which was on the same network. And so easily that network could have said, well, you're not as good as Mad Men. So why are we keeping this on the air? This is clear. We know what a good show is. It's Mad Men. But they didn't. They realized like there's good stuff here. Let's hang in there with it. See what happens. Then once it started streaming, well, it kind of blew up and up and up and up and up and up and never stopped blowing up. But yeah, no, I didn't think it was a get out of jail free card. I thought it was a a job on a drama that I'd never seen that would be interesting. And uh, also I would get paid. That's nice. And uh, also I had little kids at home and shitty as it is, any chance you get to take three days and go to Albuquerque and watch TV until 2 a.m., you know, or go to a restaurant for dinner and not be able to help at home because you can't because you're too far away, you will take that opportunity. You modeled Saul Goodman after the notorious producer Robert Evans and, and the hollow man that your father represented. But when it came to making Better Call Saul, yeah. how did you reimagine the character? And by doing so, did Jimmy McGill demand more out of you? Oh, much more. Yeah, Better Call Saul is way more work than Breaking Bad. Way harder. You know, people ask me, when did you, you know, just know you want to be an actor? <laughs> And I say, when I got the first script of Better Call Saul, when I was 52, and I said, holy shit, I better become a fucking actor because <laughs> I got to do this. And how did you? I just got to work. I mean, I had experience performing and some experience considering what acting is. Mostly I use my writing skills to take the script and to kind of take it apart and uh, maybe write. Uh, on my scripts now, I've gotten more of a, you know, like a system. And on the right side of the page is uh, sort of prompts to help me understand the story and the flow and the words themselves. And on the left side is subtext and emotion and the journey of the script emotionally. And so that is just writing work, essentially. That's like deconstructing writing. That's what I did. I said, well, what is this guy? Who is this guy? And I started taking apart his language and who does he think he's talking to and what does he think he's doing? What does he seem to want? And... And that's how I became an actor, is having been a writer. I think what's clear is, I, what I'm getting at is, you brought all of yourself and your memories yeah. to this character. I don't know how anyone does anything else. I, I guess there's a school of acting that says it's meant to be more about imagination than using your own experiences. Uh -huh. But uh, I don't get it. I don't understand that. What do you mean? What are you talking about when you say your imagination? I mean, I didn't do the things that Jimmy McGill did. But I know what it's like to resent someone and I know what it's like to want someone to love you in a certain way and then they just won't do it or, and then you realize they can't do it. And so you'll never be happy wanting that from them and you have to live with that pain and loss or you have to make peace with it. And I know all these, I know a version of all these feelings that he's feeling and I have my own experience in my life that I went through that leaves me with the vestiges of those feelings. Huh. And I go to those things and re-experience them in my imagination and memory. And 
I just don't see how there's any other way to do it. Isn't that just how you do it? You give so much of yourself to this character that, you know, on Tuesday, July 27th, 2021, you suffer this heart attack on set. Mm. For 18 minutes, your heart stops. And in that time, you said, I didn't see a white light. I didn't have a flashback on my life. And I'm curious, what did you see both in that moment and in the days to follow? How do you think of that event now? So my experience was not like a traditional, you know, near-death experience that you've heard about and people write about where, you know, there's a staircase or a tunnel with light and you go up there and a voice says, how do you feel about being alive and we need to send you back and all those things. I've heard those stories and they're impressive and wild and, you know, great, mystical. Um, nothing, zero. I had a void. I disappeared into a time hole that started on the morning that I had the heart attack. So I shot all day that day. It happened at 5.30. So we'd been shooting all day. I don't remember any of that acting or what we shot. I mean, I can watch it and I see that I did it, but I don't remember the experience of it at all. And then I don't remember the next week. And the first thing I remember is, even though I was awake the next day at one o'clock, 1.30, I came out of the, and I talked to my family every day, and but I just, nothing. I just, nothing retained, zero, complete blank, uh, until I'm talking to the doctors leaving the hospital. I do remember in that being in that room. And then I remember slowly over the next few days, you know, every day waking up, kind of feeling like, what's happening, you know, for a couple more days. So maybe about a, about a week and a half of real, like blank, black hole experience. And uh, it was kind of awesome. Like I was really upbeat. I was like a, a kid uh, waking up uh, on the first day of summer vacation. That's what I was like every day for kind of weeks. The world was like fresh, like it was kind of beautiful. I loved it. What's fascinating, so much of Better Call Saul is about this question of whether a flawed person can change their capacity to break past their own limitations. And I wondered if suffering this heart attack produced a change in you. Because it was this blank, clean slate, and it carried on for really weeks after, I mean, I started having my memory after I went home, after about a week and a half, I started having more of a, I knew where I was and I knew about the heart attack, but I still needed people to tell me about it. Even two, three weeks later, I'd be like, tell me what happened that day. You know, and I'd want to hear the story because it sort of needed it refreshed, but also I could see how much it affected everyone around me uh. who was standing around the whole crew and cast. They were there and it just devastated people. How did that make you feel? Uh, sad. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was really sad. So I wanted them to tell me about that because I wasn't a part of it. You know, <laughs> I was at the core of it, the center of it, but I wasn't, um, it's like I didn't partake in that experience with all my friends. I wanted to understand, you know, cause I could feel it, you know. But it's, I just, the effects of it and the way that it resonated with me are, are only now um, really coming into my life. Um, 
How do you mean? Well, essentially, it made me realize that I was working so hard for so many years. And as much as I love what I do and get to do, I think my life had thinned out in a way because all I did was work. And I still feel like I have to find a different way to be. And I and now I have the opportunity to do that because I had responsibilities that I had to finish and do. And finish Better Call Saul. I'd already said I would do Lucky Hank. I had read that script before I had the heart attack and said, I like this. I want to do this show. It's fundamentally different from Better Call Saul. The character's, you know, funny and he knows he's funny. He makes jokes. He's more self-aware than Saul. He's more my age. He loves his wife. She loves him. He loves his daughter. She hopefully, presumably loves him. He's not a loner like Saul was. He's just fundamentally a different person, and it's a very different show. It's got more comedy streaming through it. But I had to finish all these things that I had promised I would do, and there are many of them, a long list of things. And I just knew I have to finish this list, and I have to slow down, and I have to put some space into my life because I'm not really experiencing my life for the last couple of years. I'm just hitting it every fucking day, every day, just, you know, pushing, going at it. And there's a dimension lost. It's not good. You don't want to do that because as industrious as it is, and while you may need to do that in your life, after a while, it's just like, this is, this doesn't amount to anything. I don't exist. I'm just a machine that works. So I now have feel like I've gotten to that point now where I completed so many things that I said I would do and I can put some space in my life and I'm going to do that and I'm doing it. Yeah. And we're adults. We live in America. What year is it? 2023. The Uh last 20 years, 50 years have been about self-actualization, mostly though about, you know, making more money than you made today and being more important and, you know, Tony Robbinsing it up. And it's like, yeah, but I don't know. It's kind of bullshit. We're all going to end up in a fucking urn. (laughs) And no one's going to give a shit what you did. Not a shit. I have to tell you, this is quite the plot twist that you're throwing at me. Because we have just spent 90 minutes talking about all the things that you have spent your life making. Right. And I've enjoyed many of them a lot. And I'm very, very lucky to have done that. But there's a place where it goes too far. And it's a one-dimensional kind of existence. I wonder if the thing you want to hold on to in the years ahead, this is just a theory, is the joy you see in Tim Robinson when you do that sketch Uh that I think you should leave. Yeah, The joy... You saw Steven Spielberg have behind the monitor right. when you're in the post. Yes. The same weird, chaotic joy that Del Close had in that shitty apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Back in Chicago in 1983. Is that all you're still after now? Well, it's, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I don't know what the name for that is. <laughs> but I do think that one of the things you need to have that is space in your life this time when you're not in a race to get to the next place or to do a workout or whatever, ticking off a list of responsibilities for a 
a go get em day. My grandma once saw me walking home from school. The world was a different place when I was five years old, four and a half when I went to kindergarten. And my mom would let me walk home from school alone. School was like two blocks away. But I mean, I was four and a half. I was very young, maybe even four. Uh, that's why I went to college when I was 16 is because I went to school when I was younger than most kids. And uh, my grandma drove by me because she lived nearby and she called my mom and said, does he ever make it home? Because <laughs> I was like poking something with a stick and walking like one step and then another step and then looking at a rock and like fucking. And that's a part of life that you lose as you become an adult. And it's a shame, man. You cannot lose that dimension of lollygagging. That is fucking a crucial dimension of life, of living on earth. <laughs> so that's what I got from nearly dying is let's go. Let's get to lollygagging. Let's do some of that. The joy. Yeah, there's joy in it. There's probably a lot of feelings in it. Not always upbeat, but it's that just taking in the world that you should be doing that a little in your week. So I'm trying to get that dimension back in my life and I know I can do it. I'm sure I can do it. Anyway, the question is, what did you get from nearly dying? And the answer is, you're not really living if all you're doing is racing around, getting shit made or done. Yeah, there's gotta be this kind of wiggle room that you enjoy things in. So then what are those things? For you at, at age 60? Well, I, I do think, when I think back to being 20 and 25 and, and having more of this feeling that I had, yeah, as pissed off as I was, I did a certain amount of that walking home from school thing all my life up until I got real work that I loved. I had more of that space in my life where I fucking fucked off for uh, the afternoon. This is going to sound so corny, but travel is a good thing because you're seeing new shit and, but not just the kind of travel where you tick shit off, but you just wander around aimlessly. <laughs> I know it when I see it, when I feel it. The other night I had a most amazing experience. I was with my daughter in New York. We walked by two guys talking on the street, walking past us. And I turned to my daughter and I go, is that Glenn Hansard who walked by us, you know, who wrote once? And she goes, oh, I don't, I don't think so. She loved that movie and the soundtrack and all. And we turned around and I ran up to him. I go, are you Glenn? Glenn, Glenn. Hey, we're big fans. And he goes, well, I'm doing a show tonight, a secret show at a place called The Scratcher in New York. Great little Irish pub. And you want to come down? And so we went over there and we just hung out and they played music and we all, the whole crowd just loved it and dug it and sang. And I drank three Guinnesses, which I don't usually hardly drink anything. And it was just such an easygoing great hangout that I just don't usually do. I mean, I'm a person who, and anybody who knows me knows, is what are we doing here? Are we getting something done? Are we getting something done? Because, you know, if we're not getting something done, let's fucking go do something where we are. You know, whatever it is. I don't give a shit if it's taking out the garbage or walking the dog or writing a comedy sketch, but let's get shit done. And that's a very modern individualistic, make the most of yourself way of seeing the world. And I just think I lost a lot by just living that way for so long. 
I, I lost years of feeling my experience. And uh, so anyway, I'm trying to get that back in. Maybe it's harder than I think. Maybe. It's not just about going for a hike. I insist it's not just about finding a fucking guru. I do not believe in gurus. I do not believe in gurus. All of them can fuck off. All of them. Well, to close, all this conversation about getting things done and upward mobility and all these things that you think that you maybe in retrospect feel like, gosh, why did I do all of that? Why did I spend yeah, I mean, all my time? I mean, I don't time? feel bad about doing all these yes. things. I just feel bad about, I think I feel bad about the way we live now and our mindset. And I think I've been a part of it. And I feel bad about, you know, writing that book, comedy, 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 drama, to try to sell one more fucking copy. But writing the book was hard. And one of the reasons it was hard is I don't remember shit. And you don't remember shit if all you do is race from Bob, one thing to the this next. Is, this, is, this is the silver lining. All the things you made, all the things we've talked about, yeah. what they offered to me and many people listening mm. is a break from that cycle you're talking about. It is, was, and will forever be refuge to those who just want to laugh at how fucking stupid we are. Yeah. And for that... <laughs> Good. I thank you. Thank you, buddy. Bob Odenkirk, a pleasure. All right. It was great. that's our show if you enjoyed this episode be sure to give us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks to the teams at lead company amc and of course the one and only bob odenkirk to watch his new show lucky hank we've included the link in our show notes we've also included a link to his book and so much more at talkeasypod.com for more conversations with other very funny people, I check out our episodes with Judd Apatow, Natasha Leone, Pedro Pascal, Quinta Brunson, Bill Hader, Abby Jacobson, Kamel Nanjiani, and Nick Kroll. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. We also made a vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, one that I'm not sure she has heard, but that does not mean that you can't hear it. And if you'd like to hear it or buy it or both, visit our website at talkeasypod.com shop. 
As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shanoi. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ethan Seneca, Ian Jones, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Paulina Suarez and Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.